I remember the first time I heard that ours is a relationship, not a religion. You ever heard that? I want a relationship, not a religion. And on the, on the face of it, that sounds real nice. Okay? We want relationship because that conjures up images of, of intimacy, of, of authenticity, of genuineness. And we don't want religion because religion represents formality. Well, the, the culture out of which the notion of relationship rather than religion, the culture out of which that mindset came is a culture that doesn't like formality. It doesn't like commitment. And we like the idea of being able to have this intimate relationship with Jesus or an intimate relationship with God that is basically devoid of any sense of formality, any sense really of awe. But passages like this remind us that approaching the living God is serious business. And I dare say that while we want relationship devoid and divorced from rules and regulations, God actually wants those rules and regulations to bind our relationship in a formal way. You see, God does not relate to you like the significant other who wants to live with you but not commit. God seals the deal and marries you. He commits. And the commitment form that we find in Scripture is what's known as a covenant. A covenant which... Many people have tried to define, it's legally binding, it's formal, it's official. A famous theologian in our tradition, O. Palmer Robertson, defines a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly administered. And that's generally good, except for one of the key covenants of Scripture that totally fails to define it. But nonetheless, what we see is that a covenant is the formalized institution of a relationship that is characterized by responsibilities, rights, and privileges. It's formal. This is fundamentally different from what we might think of as a contract. A contract is a formal agreement by two or more parties, and it's inherently transactional in nature. It's to set the terms up for the delivery of goods or the performance of some act. You do this and you'll get X, Y, and Z in payment or recompense or whatever. But once the deal has been completed, it's done. Contracts are inherently of a definite time scope, whereas a covenant by its very nature in instituting a relationship goes on and on and on. So the chief covenant of which we are aware in our experience is the covenant of marriage. The binding together of two people. And it has rules. Forsaking all others. Till death do us part. Better or worse. You know those things that we said? Maybe some of you took some newfangled vows and left out the till death do us part. I don't know. 
But there's rules that govern the relationship. And there's a sense of formality. Anything worthwhile has that formality to it. And God here institutes a covenant with the people of Israel because he knows that the day is coming when they will leave Sinai. And that fire and shock and awe experience, if you want to put it in romantic terms, the in love experience is going to go away. And they're going to be left with the mundane realities of life in the ancient Near East or the mundane experiences of life in the 21st century. And we're going to forget the fire and the smoke and the shock and the awe and the thunder and the lightning and the trumpets. We're going to forget the butterfly feeling in our tummy. And so what we're left with then is this commitment and these rules and these regulations and these rights and these privileges that undergird and inform our understanding and keep us going through the normality of life. Now, covenants are a pretty big deal in Scripture. Um, God always relates to His people by way of a covenant. God is a covenanting God. God is a God of commitment. And so we see the first biblical covenant in Genesis 9 with the Noahic covenant, when God makes a covenant to never again destroy the earth with a flood. And He sets His bow, the, what we call the rainbow, in the air. And who, which direction does the bow face? When you recurve a bow and you pull it back to fire it, the bow bends, right? Which way is a rainbow bent? Up. In other words, God is saying by this covenant, may I be destroyed if I break it. God will never break that covenant. And then we see, fast forwarding a few chapters a covenant with Abraham that all the, nation, all the nations would be blessed through his seed in Genesis 15. Fast forwarding, we see in 2 Samuel 7, the Davidic covenant where we learn that the Messiah would come through the line of David. In Jeremiah 31, we see prophesied most clearly the new covenant which Jesus and his blood inaugurates. But here in Exodus chapter 24, we see the ratification of what's known as the Mosaic or Sinaic Covenant. Sometimes it's called the Mosaic Covenant because he was the mediator of it. And sometimes it's called the Sinaic Covenant because that's where it was made. And scholars have a hard time with the name because... Honestly, the other Old Testament biblical covenants are named after the person with whom the covenant is made. But here the covenant is made with the people of Israel. So, but we don't call it the Israelite covenant. So I don't know why. But you'll read in the literature Mosaic covenant or Sinaic covenant after Moses or Sinai. But he institutes it here. The covenant was previewed or prefigured in chapter 19, which we looked at a few weeks ago. In chapter 19, verses 4 to 8, the people make it to the base of Mount Sinai, and God begins by saying, hey, remember, I've saved you. So what's about to follow is not me laying out a series of blocks you've got to check off if you want to earn your way to me. I've saved you. 
Now, I'm going to offer you this covenant, and if you will keep the covenant, you will be a sacred possession, a holy people, a royal priesthood. And so Moses goes to the people, and they say, yeah, we'll do it. And so from chapter 20 to 23, God has been laying out the terms of this covenant. And here in chapter 24, the covenant is actually ratified. It is this covenant right here, chapter 24, that is the basis for the rest of Old Testament history. All of the sins, all of the rebellion against God, all of the departure from, from, from the Lord and the serving of Baals, everything that, trans, that transpires and occurs throughout the rest of the Old Testament is basically them violating the covenant they make right here. And in the New Testament, the covenant that is referred to as the Old Covenant or the covenant that is obsolete and passing away, it is this covenant right here. And as Paul makes very clear in the book of Galatians, the Abrahamic covenant which came before in Genesis is still in force, which is why everyone who's ever saved is viewed as a, as a child of Abraham in Christ. Now this right here, this chapter, would be enough if all it were was a formal recounting of this very important national covenant. If that's all it was, it would still be a big deal. But amazingly, it's even more. In this passage right here, we get a glimpse of the reason for which we were saved. We get a glimpse of the order of salvation we get a glimpse of the very nature of atonement. In other words, this passage not only institutes a covenant as a matter of historical record, but it shows us the way of salvation and how we can rightly relate to God. First, I have to point out that what we're reading was written. And that may seem innocent enough, but what was written is of vital importance. Notice, if you would please, in verse 4, it says that Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He wrote down for the people's written record. Now, chances are what he wrote down was basically chapters 20 through 23, which is why it's called the Book of the Covenant. So he wrote it down, and then fast forward to verse 7 in the morning, after he's written it down in the morning, it says he took the book of the covenant, and he read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. Okay. Moses' written record of the spoken word of God is the word of God. And so Moses reading from this book that he had written was received and understood to be what God has spoken. And of course it was. In 2 Timothy 3.16, which is one of the most important verses to memorize, what do we learn? All scripture is God-breathed. So those first early Hebrews reading what Moses wrote understood this was what God said. This was God's word. Same with Paul. Same with Mark, Matthew. Same with Isaiah. Same with whoever wrote the various books of the Bible. 
Okay? The point is, is their written record of the Word of God is the Word of God. And this is so important. Because what God expects and demands of His people is obedience. You cannot say that you are in right relationship with God if you are in brazen defiance of God. And where do you hear and ascertain God's will? In His Word. So, would you ascertain the will of God for your life? Read the Bible. Would you want to hear from the Lord? You want to hear the voice of God? Read your Bible. It's amazing how many people simply don't get it. How many Christians think that they're going to be wiser than God? They either neglect or abandon the written word. And so they find themselves going astray. For example, I was recently talking to someone who said that they are, that they, they've been, that they are, uh, they are currently taking a break from church. Despite the fact that the Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And we think that by actually going contrary to Scripture, that this is going to draw us closer to the Lord? The word of the Lord says to forgive quickly, lest we give the devil a foothold, and we don't, because my pride is so precious. We are to render unto the Lord the things that are the Lord's, and we greedily cling to everything as if it's ours in the first place, despite the fact that in his word he's very clear everything that we have is really his. Even your very breath. Have you considered that? Your heart beating in the chest, and your chest is pushing around blood that God has loaned you. Your lungs expanding is bringing in air that God has let you borrow. Everything is the Lord's. We are stewards. This is what the Bible teaches. So obey the written word. It is the word of God. It would be no less authoritative than if God was literally speaking from the sky right now. That is how authoritative the written word is. But we want to have it our way. We want to read it on our terms, obey it on our terms, interact with God on our own terms. That's the way we are. We're sinners. But thanks be to God, he shows us the right way. It would be within his just rights if he were to just let us flounder about and then ultimately find us guilty. But instead, he reaches down and graciously shows us the right way. Notice in verse 1, God says, Come up to me, you and Aaron and Adab and Nabihu and, and 70 of the elders, and worship. Now, does verse 2 record them promptly going up the mountain? No. It's not until several verses later that they go up to the mountain. Have you ever wondered why? Why didn't they just march themselves right up the mountain when God said to come close and worship? He says to worship. Because this passage understands 
the basis for worship, which, which we see to be communion with God, is right relationship with God. And so before the people can go up to the mountain, they must be in right relationship with God. And God is not a fly-by-night lover. And so he institutes a covenant of commitment with his people. A covenant that brings them into relationship with him formally and officially. And then after right relationship has been established, they go up and they behold God. And this is what it is to worship in this context. In this context, worshiping looks like fellowship. Is that amazing or what? You see different pictures, theophanies in the Old Testament of, of God showing up in splendor and, 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 and people are just dumbstruck and it's amazing. But here, seeing God and worshiping God is communing at His feet. We were saved for fellowship. You see this flow even in the very sacrifices that Moses offers. He offers first burnt offerings atonement offerings, sin offerings. And then he offers peace offerings, which are fellowship offerings. And so when the people of Israel, the elders, go up to feast at the feet of God, and it says they beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. Notice how it doesn't say they're not up there jawjacking. This is, they're not up there in terror, but they're in wide-eyed wonder at what they're beholding. Now, how does this square with Exodus 33 when God says that no one can see him and live? Or John 1.18 when it says no one has seen God? Well, what does it mean here when it says twice? It reiterates, they beheld God. Well, it means that they saw enough of his personage that you would normally have expected them to be killed, which is why the text points out that they weren't. But obviously what it means in the light of other scriptures is they were probably viewing him from below through this transparent glassy footboard, whatever. That's why they describe it. They see just enough of God to know that he's there. And it doesn't consume them and they're amazed. And that's what God saved us for. To delight in his presence. And that's the worship they offer there. But before they're able to go worship, they must first enter into the covenantal agreement. They must first agree to be God's people. They must first agree to submit to his laws and his commandments and his rules and his regulations. And God agrees to be their savior, their champion. Now, the blood of the altar here, the blood of the covenant here, is really offensive to a lot of people. Okay, we don't like talking about blood. If, if, you, if you imagine this scene in your mind's eye, it sounds like a bloodbath. I mean, it's literally a bloodbath. Taking who knows how many animals were killed, and he throws half of the blood on the altar. They enter into the covenant, and then he throws the other half of the blood on the people. Wow. What's that about? Well, right here we have a picture of atonement. The Old Testament religion was all about pointing out the need for saving. The need for being saved from the wrath of God. 
And so two key salvation concepts are laid out here that are absolutely essential. The first is the fact that we see Moses throwing blood on the altar. He starts this whole covenant ceremony out by throwing half of the animal's blood on the altar. The altar represents God's presence in the midst of the people. Now, how can a holy God exist in the midst of a rebellious and stiff-necked people? How? He can't. Unless the people are atoned for. And so what we see this blood doing right here is we see it in a very real sense placating and atoning for the sins of the people by covering and making peace with God. This is what's known as propitiation. It's a very technical word, but it basically means assuaging the anger of a just God who is angry at the sins of a particular person or people. Your sins are offensive to God. And your tendency to be sinful is offensive to God. And so the absolute first thing that must happen for right relationship to exist is God's anger at your sin to be assuaged. Which is why the blood is applied first to the altar. Now, this is a key point of true religion. It begins first and foremost with our vertical relationship with God. The point of religion the point of Christianity, the point of your relationship with Jesus is not primarily to make you a better person. It's not to make you a better citizen. The point is first and foremost to make you right with God because your problem, your chief problem is not your frustrating human relationships. It's not your jerk boss, your mean husband, your, un, your misunderstanding parents. It's not any of that. It's not even your body that's falling apart. Your chief problem is the fact that you will stand before a holy God. And if you are not right with him, it is bad news for you. And so what God does in this covenant is first and foremost cleans us in his sight. His anger at our guilt and sin is assuaged. And atonement is made. But then after that, the blood is applied to the people because we are guilty and contaminated and dirty. And I know it sounds like a horrible picture because they literally had blood thrown on them and now they're worse off than they looked before, right? From a human perspective. But it's portraying a spiritual truth that they need to be covered in the blood. And that may seem like an Old Testament concept, but, but those truths are all throughout the New Testament. When Jesus is called... By John the Baptist, his cousin, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he was making direct statement about the blood that would be shed. And of course we see in uh, uh, Hebrews 9.22 that without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins because we are guilty and justice must be paid and the penalty is death. So something's got to die. And so in 
Hebrews 13, we're told that Jesus shed his blood and by it we are sanctified. In Ephesians 1.7, we're told that we are sanctified by the purification we have through the shedding of Christ's blood. In 1 Peter 1.12, we're told about having been sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus. In Revelation 7.14, we're told about the people of God are those who, and, and, and the very picture here is their robes have been washed and turned white by the blood of Jesus. Or specifically, the blood of the Lamb. And so, when God looks at you, you are one then who has, having had the blood of the Lamb applied to you, you are clean, you are pure, you are innocent. Indeed, thanks to Christ's righteousness applied to us, we are righteous ourselves. That's what God sees. But these components of propitiation and, and this removal of the stain of guilt that applies when the people are covered in blood is known as expiation. So there you go. You've learned two big theological words today. Propitiation and expiation. Propitiation, again, is God's anger at sin being assuaged. Expiation is the guilt and stain of sin being removed. And both of those are key concepts in biblical history. And we see them right here on prominent display. Now it's through these things, God's anger at sin being assuaged and us being cleansed, that as a result, we are in right relationship. Now, the beautiful thing is that in Christ, both things happen simultaneously. By Christ's death and resurrection, our sins have been, have been paid for. The atonement has been made. And we have been redeemed. We have been cleansed. All at the same time. So the people of God in verse 1 are called to come up and worship. But before they can worship, they've got to sacrifice and enter into covenant. Do you see the premonitions of what Jesus is going to say later? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Okay, When God calls people to come and worship, He's not just having an open door. I'll, you know, I'll accept the praise of every living thing that crawls the earth because I know at their rock bottom core, we all, everyone's worshiping the same God. That's not God's attitude. God's attitude is, come worship me but you must be made right by me to be accepted in my sight. And that is exactly what he offers us in the gospel. When Jesus in Matthew 26 says, this is my blood of the covenant. He's pointing out that with the institution of the Lord's Supper, with his coming sacrifice, he's instituting the new covenant that was predicted in Jeremiah 31, that he's opened a living way for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And by faith, we stand as if we are covered by the very blood that these 70 elders were covered by. And we're invited then to come worship in his presence. 
So come and worship. Come by the blood of the eternal covenant. Because Jesus had agreed from eternity past to pay for your sins. Come and worship. Come and marvel at his presence. Come with your burdens, with your cares. Come with your sins and lay them down. That you might find rest for your soul. The Lord tells Moses to go up by himself after this is all done. Come up and meet with me. And Moses goes, and he's up there sitting in a cloud. He's literally sitting in the fog for six days. I don't know about you, when someone summons me, I expect them to get down to the business pretty quick. And if I have to wait 10, 15 minutes, I get irritated. Maybe I'm just really impatient. Here's Moses sitting in literal fog for six days. And it's not until the seventh day that the Lord speaks. So come worship. But this also speaks a word about the vitality of our spiritual life itself. Some of you feel dry. You feel like you're parched and it's been a long time since you've encountered the living God. Could it be that it's not that God has failed to show up? But could it be that you weren't like Moses waiting until he did? Could it be that after 15 minutes you said, he's not coming, I got better things to do? Could it be that we must be more like Moses? When God has said he will meet with us, he will. And we must be like Moses and wait until he shows up. Or we can just keep going about our lives dry and worn out, feeling as if God has left us, feeling like we're missing out on the higher life and all that. God has made a covenant with you. He is a God of commitment. He will never leave you nor forsake you. The blood of his son that binds him to you guarantees it. And so you can worship him. Sing back his praises and delight in his presence. But then in the vitality of your spiritual life, since you have access to the living God, sit there basking in his goodness. Even if you have to wait a while, wait. The Lord will show up and the Lord will speak life to you. Let's pray.